Let's pray together. Father, we are so unworthy to come to you. We do not deserve your faithfulness. We do not deserve your love. We do not deserve your grace. And yet, Lord, you freely give them to us because of your great love. So, Lord, today I pray that we would rest in that love. That, Lord, today we would trust fully in Jesus Christ. That, Lord, today our hearts would be changed by your word. Father, we pray that as we come to the scriptures together this morning, that, Father, we would believe what you have given us to believe. That, Father, we would rejoice in the revelation that you have given to your people. That, Father, we would exalt Christ together. Father, I pray that you would speak to your people through this message today. That the proclamation of your word would not return void. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 will be starting in verse 18 this morning, Exodus 4, 18. And our, our sermon this morning is going to cover from chapter 4, verse 18, all the way to chapter 6, verse 1. Last week, we left off with Moses receiving messages to deliver to Israel and to Pharaoh and signs for him to show in case those messages are not believed. And we talked about how the purpose of those signs is specifically so that people who saw them would see God as true and real and righteous and powerful. But Moses continued to make excuses as to why he was not the right man for the task. But ultimately, it is revealed that Moses simply has an obedience problem. That at the heart of all of it, Moses simply just doesn't want to go. And so the Lord makes provision for Moses. He addresses some of the complaints. Moses is concerned that the people won't listen, and God says they're going to listen. And Moses is concerned that the people won't believe him, and God says they're going to believe you. And Moses says, well, I can't do it because I have a speech problem. And the Lord says, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron. I know he can speak well, and you will speak to him, and he will speak to the people. There, you have no more excuses. And so that's where our story picks up today. It continues with Moses' journey back to Egypt and the Lord, and he, he is tasked with delivering those messages, the message to Israel, the message to Pharaoh. But all does not go the way that Moses expects. However, everything does go exactly as the Lord intends. And so as we consider the scriptures together this morning, I hope that we are able to see that the Lord is at work, even in our most difficult circumstances for his own glory, and for our good. 
And that our response in those times should be faith. Rather than fear, rather than frustration, we should respond in faith. And so let's look together in Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18, where we see responding in faith. If you got a bulletin or one of our sermon listening guides this morning, you will see that that is our our first point there is responding in faith. And so let's read together Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at, a mountain, at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel... And that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. So after Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush on Mount Horeb, we see him returning to his father-in-law to request leave. This is the proper thing to do because Moses has been accepted into this household and because Jethro is his employer. Moses is watching his flocks. And so Moses should speak to him as the head of his household before just taking off for Egypt. And so he goes to Jethro for permission, and Jethro tells Moses to go in peace. So there's one hurdle that the Lord has removed that would be keeping Moses from going back. We're then told that there's another hurdle that has been removed. The Lord informs Moses that everyone who is trying to kill him is dead. If you remember, Moses had struck down an Egyptian who was brutalizing an Israelite and hit him in the sand and thought that he had gotten away with it, but he didn't. And when Pharaoh found out, Pharaoh wanted to kill him. And so he fled to Midian and was there for 40 years. And during that time, Pharaoh died and all the men who knew about his crime died. All the men who wanted Moses dead are now dead. What a testimony to God's faithfulness, right? You have all these men who in their earthly power want to kill Moses. Moses doesn't die. 
They all do. And so the Lord says, it's time to go. The time is right. You have permission from your father-in-law. All the men who want to kill you are now dead. So get up and go back to Egypt. And so Moses, for the first time in the book of Exodus, we see Moses just do what God tells him to do. He doesn't argue. He just loads his family up on a donkey and heads back to Egypt with the staff of God in his hand. And along the way, apparently the Lord is communicating with Moses about the task that is laid before him. And this is where we come to our first challenging segment in our passage today. There are two very challenging things that we see here in the back half of chapter 4 that are literally right, back, right next to each other. And so the first one is this. When the Lord instructs Moses to go to Pharaoh and to perform the miraculous signs that he had given him to perform, where he could throw the staff on the ground and it would turn into a snake, or he could put his hand inside of his cloak and it would turn leprous and then put it back and it, would, and it would come back out not leprous. Or he could take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and it would turn to blood. He tells Moses, make sure when you go to Pharaoh, you do these signs. But he also tells Moses that Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. Why? Because the Lord is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That is not an odd artifact of translating an, an ancient language. We came across one of those in Sunday school this morning. But there was kind of a strange idiom and we're not entirely sure how to translate it. That's not what's happening here. This is literally what is said in the Hebrew. The Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. So let me just say up front that the plain reading of this phrase is exactly correct. There's not some sort of weird wiggle room that we're going to try to navigate to say, well, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, but he doesn't really. No. The Lord says what he means. He is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. His heart is hardened against letting Israel go by the sovereign hand of the Lord. Now, of course, this raises other questions. Most specifically, most importantly, does this make God the author of sin? God issues a direct command to Pharaoh to let his people go. And the Lord says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will disobey the command of God. Does that make God the author of sin? Well, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that that cannot be. Places like Genesis 18.25 where we're told that the judge of all the earth will do what is just. So how are we to make sense of this? How are we to understand this phrase here that the Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, between here in verse 8, excuse me, here, between right here and then in verse 8 of chapter 14. So for the next several chapters, we find several places that are references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
Nine of those references are either the Lord declaring that he will harden Pharaoh's heart or statements in the text that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it's either nine times, it's either God saying, I'm going to do this, or the text is telling us that God did it. Three times, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then seven times, it just passively states that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without any indication of who was the one who did the hardening. Just seven times, it's just passively stated. And this shifting of the answer to the question of who hardened Pharaoh's heart actually helps us to understand what exactly is meant by the statement that we see the Lord make. Because here's the question, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God did. But you know who else hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh did. And so it's both. Both of them are hardening Pharaoh's heart. When we are told that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, it is not that the Lord is working against Pharaoh's natural desires. When we read that, we should not think that Pharaoh is inclined to hear the words of the Lord through Moses and Aaron, to see the signs that are performed, and go, oh, okay, God's real, I should let these people go. That is not what his natural inclination is. That's not what's happening here. The Lord is not taking someone who is going to do what is right and good and forcing him to do something that is wrong and sinful. Instead, what is happening here is that the Lord is actively working in ways that deepen Pharaoh's grasp on those natural desires. The Lord is removing some of his restraining grace. And what is happening in response to that is that Pharaoh is diving deeper into his own sinfulness. So when we say that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, in a very real sense, what he means is he is removing his God-given softness of heart. And as a result, his heart is hardened. That's what's happening here. We must understand that the Lord does not take people who are inclined toward good and force them to do what is wicked and evil. You know why? Because there is no one who is inclined toward good. Everyone is inclined toward evil and wickedness. It is only by the grace of God that we go in any other direction than wickedness and sin and evil. That's why. That's how we should understand this. Old Testament scholar S.R. Driver said it well. The means by which God hardens a man is not necessarily, by, not necessarily by any extraordinary intervention on his part. It may be by the ordinary experiences of life, operating through the principles and character of human nature, which are of his appointment. So think about it like this. For 400 years, as long as Pharaoh has been alive, and even longer, Israel have been slaves. And now all of a sudden, the so-called God of these slaves is showing up and saying, I'm the one who's really in charge, let my people go. Well, the natural circumstances of Pharaoh's life are going to naturally harden his heart against hearing this and abiding by it. Because everything he has seen with his own eyes tells him, this is not a powerful God that I should fear or obey. If he's so powerful, why are his people in slavery? You see what I mean? 
when the Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart, it is through possibly extraordinary means, possibly supernatural means, possibly just ordinary means, but all of it is the Lord sovereignly working that Pharaoh would go more deeply into his own wickedness. This can obviously be a difficult truth to reconcile for us, but it is imperative for us to remember that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. When we hear things like God saying he will harden Pharaoh's heart, our immediate thought is to say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. The Lord is perfectly righteous and just in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And at the same time, Pharaoh is still responsible for his own sin. Paul references exactly this in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 24, where he says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul referencing this whole issue of God hardening Pharaoh's heart speaks directly to this idea of, well, how is that fair? The issue at hand is not fairness. As a friend used to say to me all the time, fairs are for funnel cakes. The issue is not about fairness, because what is fair is for every last one of us to be condemned to hell. That's what's fair. But God, in his mercy, has bestowed his grace on his people. And so as we read this text, I encourage you to not do mental gymnastics to try to justify any other understanding of God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, than exactly what it says. Because that is what happens. Because ultimately, Pharaoh is a sinner who has rejected God. And in his sin, his heart is further hardened against God and God's people by the sovereign work of God. And this, as we will see, is done in order that the perfect will of God would come to pass. Specifically, that the firstborn son of Pharaoh would be sacrificed in order to redeem the firstborn son of God foreshadowing the sonship fulfilled in us through God's sacrifice of his own begotten son. Even here in the Exodus, even here in Moses' conversation with Pharaoh, the Lord is laying out pictures 
of his sovereign salvation of his people. But where that section was a difficult one because of the implications, the next one is just plain bizarre. In fact, I will always remember the first time that I read this. I literally had to put my Bible down and go for a walk because I was so completely baffled. Along the way, Moses and his family are met by the Lord who is seeking to kill Moses. We're never told why. We don't understand. God just shows up and says, I'm going to kill you. And Zipporah, or Zipporah, excuse me, his wife, takes a flint, a sharp rock, circumcises her son, and throws the flesh at Moses' feet. And the Lord says, okay, I won't kill you. Have a nice night. And goes, what? This is strange in so many ways. First of all, the Lord has taken great effort to preserve this man. Remember, Moses was born in a time where Pharaoh had commanded that all male babies of the Israelites be thrown into the Nile. And Moses was, was hidden for three months. Then his mother prepared an ark out of a basket and put him in the river, and he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh. The Lord sovereignly preserved Moses' life. Then the Lord calls Moses out in the wilderness at Midian from a burning bush. He makes provision for Moses to go and fulfill this task. And now, seemingly at random, he shows up and says, I'm going to kill you. But it's not actually random. You see, Moses has, for whatever reason, failed to fulfill his covenant obligations in at least one of his sons and has not circumcised him. Circumcision is the outward sign of being a part of the covenant community of Yahweh. The indicator, it was an indicator that an Israelite was walking by faith and trusting in the promises of God. It was an outward sign of devotion to the Lord. This literal cutting of flesh. And neglect of this requirement would lead to being cut off from the people of God. In Genesis 17, 14, it says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so it's very simple. Either you cut off or I cut you off. It's very simple. And this is something that is usually done when Hebrew baby boys are very young. But for some reason, at least one of Moses' sons has not been circumcised. Perhaps Moses had lost faith in the promises of God. After all, he had been in Midian for 40 years. He had married a foreign woman. And it very much seemed as though the Lord had utterly abandoned him. And so maybe he just, maybe he had just felt like, okay, well, maybe Yahweh is not real. Maybe the Lord is not true. Perhaps there was a fight with his Midianite wife about circumcising their first son. And perhaps Moses won that argument and the first son was circumcised. But maybe when the second boy was born, Moses thought to himself, I really don't want to fight about this again. And he just left it alone to preserve the peace. But 
upon being called by God, when God appeared to Moses in the bush and said, you are going to Egypt to deliver my people, Moses should have immediately rectified this issue. But he didn't. And so because he didn't, the Lord seeks to end his life. Because he's had plenty of opportunity all along the way, and he still hasn't done it. How can the man who has been called by God to lead his people out of captivity not be properly abiding by God's covenant? How can he do that? How can that be? And so that's the issue here. And so Zipporah, his wife, realizes what's happening. And she circumcises her son and places the removed flesh on Moses' feet. Her activity here is why I tend to lean toward the idea that there was conflict between the two of them about circumcising their second son. That's kind of why I feel that way, because we're pointedly told that she is the one who performs the circumcision, almost as a way of saying, like, she is righting her own wrong. She is pushing herself into the covenant people of God. But that's just speculation. We don't really know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that when she places that removed flesh on Moses' feet, she protects him from judgment by the blood of sacrificial obedience to God's commands. Yeah, that's right. This very strange story in Exodus chapter 4 about the Lord wanting to kill Moses until his son's foreskin is placed on his feet is a picture of Christ. His sacrificial obedience to the commands of the Lord the commands of his father leads to the shedding of his blood, which is what covers us and protects us from the judgment of God. It's weird, I know, but it's good. She also says a saying that's likely a cultural idiom where she talks about the Lord being a bridegroom of blood to her. Look, we don't know very much about this. There's not really any explanation of why she says this. Moses points it out, so maybe it's something that the Hebrew people said. And I'm not, I'm not really sure. And so I'm not going to dive deeply into speculation about why she says that. Because ultimately, what I want us to recognize is that by the wounds of the Son, Moses is healed. And so chapter 4, this section ends with the Lord arranging a meeting between Moses and Aaron. And Aaron believing what Moses tells him about God's calling. The Lord says to Aaron, go and meet Moses. And he does. And so they both, Moses tells Aaron about all the things that the Lord has told him. And Aaron says, I'm on board, let's go. And they go back to Egypt and they go to the elders of Israel and they tell them about what the Lord has said. And they do a round of show and tell. They show the signs. And we're told that the people of Israel, the elders of Israel, believe. They believe God. And they see, they hear that the Lord has seen their affliction and they respond in worship. They see that the Lord has seen and heard their affliction and respond in worship. 
This section is filled with examples of responding in faith. Moses heads back to Egypt. Zipporah circumcises her son. Aaron obeys God. The people believe God. The back half of chapter 14 is filled with pictures of righteousness. And although this is encouraging, it will not last. That brings us into chapter 5, where we see suffering and rejection. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, make, that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but the Lord, but you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Where the previous section saw faithfulness, this section sees rejection. Pharaoh rejects Yahweh and his command to let his people go. Israel had worshipped 
And apparently they took God at his word. God's going to deliver us. They're going to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to let us go. So, hey, guys, we're done working. Start packing up. Put your feet up. Because pretty soon we're out of here. And so Moses and Aaron go, and they speak to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rejects it. He says, I don't know the Lord. I don't know who that is. I'm not letting you go. In fact, why are y'all just standing around? You guys need more to do. You need more to do. That's why you're asking to go out into the wilderness. It's like parents when their children say, I'm bored. Oh, you must need some more chores to do. Then you won't be bored. Pharaoh says, you guys are idle. That's the problem. And so what does he do? He punishes them. He decides to make the lives of the Israelites even more miserable. He reduces the amount of materials that they are supplied with, but keeps the workload the same. I'm not going to give you what you need to make bricks, but you still better make bricks. And when they can't do it, they get beaten. And so as a result of their own suffering, the Israelites then reject Moses and Aaron because Moses and Aaron have made them stink in the sight of Pharaoh. They blame Moses and Aaron and say, look, things were great before. We got all the straw we needed. We made all the bricks. This is a picture of what's going to happen as they go out into the wilderness, by the way. They always look back fondly at the terrible things that happened beforehand just when things are a little more difficult. This is a far cry from the worship that they had in the previous section. Because in rejecting Moses and Aaron, they are ultimately rejecting the Lord himself. And so because of the rejection of the Israelites and the rejection of Pharaoh, Moses responds faithlessly to the Lord as well. He says to the Lord, why have you done evil? What an absurdly terrible thing to say. Why have you the good God of all creation, done what is evil. You are supposed to be good, but your actions have only brought about more suffering. And then he says, why did you send me? I told you this was going to happen. And then he says, you've not delivered your people at all. You promised you were going to deliver your people. And you have not done that. You have only made things worse. This can be said of us as well. We often respond similarly when things don't go the way that we want them to. Because often, it seems as though following and obeying the Lord makes things worse. We do what the Word instructs and things seem to get worse instead of better. We discipline our children and they rebel against us even more fiercely. We love people in sacrificial ways, and they take advantage of that to hurt us. We strive to love our wives as Christ loved the church, or to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, and yet your marriage is worse rather than better. We give generously to the church, and now we're struggling to pay our bills. We choose to navigate the business world in ethical ways and we lose out on promotion opportunities. We lose out on contracts because we're not going to do what is wrong. 
We see this happen in our lives where obedience to the things of God seems to make things worse for us. And we are tempted to respond in the same way that the Israelites and Moses do here. But this is not the end of the story. Because what we see in chapter 6, verse 1, is we see the purpose for pain. That's our final point this morning, the purpose for pain. Chapter 6, verse 1 says this, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. When Moses cries out to God and says, God, you've done evil. You haven't delivered your people at all. God says to him, now you will see. The Lord has purposes for our pain. And the most persistent of those purposes is that we would know that He is God. Notice Pharaoh's response in 5.2. When Moses and Aaron come to him and say, the Lord has said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. One of the things that we're going to see in the coming weeks is that God is going to repeatedly explain that He is doing these things, specifically the plagues, that you may know that I am the Lord. His intention in orchestrating things in this way, His intention in hardening Pharaoh's heart and increasing the burden in the Israelites' lives, His purpose there is to heighten Israel's faith and trust in him. His intention is that they would know that he is the Lord. And you might think that that's not necessary. Because what were we told at the end of chapter 4? That they heard God and they believed God and they worshipped. But remember that Moses literally heard directly from the Lord in a burning bush. And still sought to disobey. Still argued with God. Still neglected to circumcise his son. Our sinful flesh is exceptionally fickle. And the Lord's intention and work to strengthen their faith is necessary. Because if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, even just in kind of a passing way, and you know how Israel is going to conduct themselves in the wilderness after the Exodus, you'll see that they still lacked faith in many, many ways. And it could have been so much worse. It could have been so much worse if the Lord had not shown them who He is. Their rejection, against, their rejection of Him and their rebellion against Him would have been significantly worse than it actually was. And it was pretty bad. Pain, suffering, struggling, hardship, those are things that draw those who are truly in Christ more deeply into their faith rather than pushing them away. Jesus spoke about this in the parable of the sower, which we find in multiple gospels, but I'll read from Matthew chapter 13, and it says this, and he told them many things in parables, saying a sower went out to sow. 
And he sowed, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus explains to the disciples what this parable is about, specifically referencing the seed sown on rocky ground, which doesn't have much soil, doesn't have much root, springs up immediately and then gets and then withers away. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Is that not what happened to Israel here described perfectly? They hear the word of the Lord. That he has come to deliver them. And how do they respond? In joy. We're going to be free. And they worship. And then the moment tribulation comes, what do they do? They're immediately back to, you made it worse, God. This is not good. This is not joyful. This is not something to worship for. This is pain. This is hardship. This is suffering. But one of the things about the parable of the sower is that the conditions that cause some of these plants to wither and die are the same conditions that the seed that fell in the good soil faced. But what happened to them? They grew up. They bore fruit. Why? Because they were rooted in Christ. Our response to suffering and pain and hardship should be, must be, faith in Christ. That's not to say that we won't doubt or that we won't struggle, because we absolutely will. But when the dust settles, our hearts are secure in the promises of God that all find their yes in Jesus Christ. I got hard news for you, folks. Your burdens are going to increase in this life. The health and wellness preachers are wrong. They are lying to you. Coming to Jesus is not a ticket to an easy, stress-free, pain-free life. It's the literal opposite. It is the literal opposite. The world hates us because the world hates Christ. Our lives are going to increase in burdens as long as we live. The chief burden is our own sin that comes from within us. We tend to think of our burdens as being things that are pressing on us from outside. But the most significant burden we have is our own sinful flesh. But where our sufferings increase, grace abounds all the more. Where our sufferings increase, God shows himself. When we suffer, then we will know that he is God.
when our burdens increase, when life is hard, when everything we do seems to make it worse, rest in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Keep doing what his word demands. Keep faithfully following after Jesus. Because one day, one way or another, all pain, all suffering, all sorrow will cease. And there will be only joy forever. But that is only true if you are in Christ. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, if you are here this morning and you have never repented of your sins and believed on Jesus for salvation, then guess what? Your pain does not have a happy ending. Your suffering only leads to more eternal suffering under the wrath of God. And there is only one escape. The Lord will meet you along the way just as he met Moses and his family, seeking to destroy you. And there is only one hope for you, that you would be covered by the blood of the Son. And so today, if you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ, if you have not repented and believed the gospel for salvation, I implore you, come and talk to me today. I would love to sit and share with you how you too can know Jesus Christ and be saved. For the rest of us, take heart. Take heart. Because grace abounds in suffering. And one day, we will be face to face with our Lord. And there will be only pleasure forevermore. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible joy it is that you have given us your word, that you have given us yourself in your son. So, Father, we pray that we would trust you, that we would have faith in the midst of our struggles and our pain and our suffering, that, Father, our delight would ever be in Christ and in Christ alone. I pray, Lord, for any of us here who are in the midst of suffering and pain. I pray, Lord, that you would hold them fast. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who does not know Christ. I pray, Lord, that today you would give them a new heart and draw them to yourself. Save them today, Father, as only you can. Father, we rest in your sovereign will, because you are good. Help us, Lord, to respond to you today in faith. In Christ's name, amen.